If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to 1 John chapter 2. We'll be looking at the first six verses of that chapter. If you don't know where 1 John is, just go way, uh, I guess, west in your Bible. And then start uh, moving east just a little bit and you'll find him. So 1 John chapter 2. Verses 1 through 6. This is God's Word. We believe that God is sovereign in all things. And so we can trust that this is the passage that He has chosen for you to hear hear from today. This is His passage to you this morning. So let's read it together. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you this morning as people that are distracted, people that are busy, people that are humbled, people that are desiring to hear from you. We come from all different stages in life. And so, Father, we do pray that you would speak to us that you would meet us in the places that we are through your word. Father, this is your voice to us. And without it, Father, we are nothing. Without it, we have no guide. Without it, we don't know your love. We don't know the peace we have with you. So, Father, would you be so gracious this morning as to pour out your Holy Spirit? Would you teach us from this passage? Would our hearts be encouraged? Would our lives be encouraged? And would we be uh, encouraged to live out our faith in this community? But most of all, Father, we do pray that we would meet Jesus in this passage. That we would be transformed because we met Him face to face this morning. And we would leave this sanctuary as changed people because of what Jesus has done in our lives. So would you be with us now? In Christ's name, amen. I've learned over the last several months that being a father to a two-year-old has a lot of insight into the Christian life. Uh, Some of you laugh because you understand. That's right. My two-year-old has started to push Ashley and I's boundaries. He's into terrible twos. He's into disobeying mommy and daddy. Uh, And so this has allowed us many opportunities to, uh, to lovingly discipline our child whether it's sending the little guy to time out or actually giving the little guy a spanking, the result is always the same. We get the the pouty little lip. We get the the whiny little boy. We get these big old tears running down his face. But most of all, what we get is we get this cry for him for reassurance. He longs to know that his daddy and his mommy still love him, even after we have disciplined him. 
Many of, us like, many of us in here are like that this morning. We long for reassurance. We're struggling this morning in our faith, and we want to know, does God really love me? We desperately need to know His assurance. And we're, we're crying out, as my son does, holding up our arms saying, Daddy, hold you. Daddy, hold you. Daddy, hold you. Now, my son doesn't know English syntax, but you get his point. He longs to be embraced by his father and to hear me whisper in his ears that you are still my son and I still love you and I still cherish you. For those of you this morning that are struggling in your faith, you come this morning and you have struggled with sin this week. Temptation has been overwhelming in some area in your life and you have given in to the sin that you told yourself you would never do again. And so your face and your heart is downcast and you're struggling this morning with knowing that God still loves you. That God is still on your side. That God still considers you His son and His daughter. This passage this morning is meant to be an encouragement to you in that sense. That God is still in love with you. That God still cherishes you and still wants you to know that you are his son and his daughter. And that's the purpose that John has in this whole book. John's purpose is to let these people know that their God loves them. To let them, these people know that they are, to let them be assured of how much God cares for them. We see that if you turn over real quick to chapter 5, verse 13. John says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John is concerned that his congregation or these congregations in the city of Ephesus or around the area of Ephesus know that they have eternal life. Now, John doesn't use the word eternal life in the sense that we understand it. John is not speaking in terms of time. John is speaking in terms of a person. Uh, we see that in the first couple verses of this book where he writes, to that which, we, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was, and was made manifest to us. He's speaking as if Jesus is the eternal life. He's not talking in terms of, of time, but in terms of a person. Also, if you turn with me to chapter 5, verse 11, he reiterates this point even more. And this is the testimony that God gave, to, gave us eternal life. And this life is, his, in, is in His Son. Excuse me. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. John wants these people to know that they have life. He wants them to be reassured that they know, uh, reassured that Jesus is in them and that they have life in him and that nothing can, be, uh, nothing can enter into their lives and take that away from them. Now that brings me to the context of our passage. Why is John writing about these things? Well, it's important for us to know that Gnosticism uh, was really prevalent in this age, are really prevalent in this area. And Gnosticism was simply this philosophy of people understanding God with some kind of secret knowledge. 
that Christianity was really about knowing God secretly, knowing who he is and having some secret knowledge about him. Um, and the Gnostics denied, because they were so focused on the secret knowledge and the spirit, spiritual reality of God, that they denied the humanity of Jesus. What was important about Jesus was not that he was human, is that he was spirit. And to know Jesus rightly was to be caught up with him in some kind of spiritual knowledge. They denied the flesh, fleshly evidence of Jesus or existence of Jesus. And what was happening is these people were members of the Christian church, are members, are followers of Jesus, and yet they have been so persuaded by this Gnostic philosophy that they were leaving the church. Not only were they leaving the church, but they were coming back to the church to influence these young believers that they were wrong. That they need to know that Jesus didn't exist as a human, but he's a spirit. And what's important about your life is you understand the spiritual reality and have a, a, a higher spiritual knowledge. Commentators refer to these people as cessationists, people that had seceded from the Christian community, had left them, and now are um, perpetrating or invading the Christian church, spreading this Gnostic philosophy. We see this in chapter 2, verse 19 through 25. It says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become, cl become cl plain, excuse me, that they all are not of us. So these are actually people that were invested in this community that had been persuaded in some other, uh, persuaded by some other philosophy and left the community of God. And now we're coming back to, I guess, attract others, young believers, away from the community and teach them of some Gnostic philosophy to have some secret knowledge of God is what, what Christianity was all about. To follow Jesus meant to have some secret higher knowledge. And Paul, I mean, and John is, is worried about this message invading the church and influencing these young believers. And it's not surprising, or it wouldn't surprise me that some of us in here might be struggling with that this morning also. That you have been persuaded by some other philosophy or that you have somebody in your life that, whether it's a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, a son, a daughter, that when you, want, when you experience their existence around you, you feel guilty. You feel unworthy. Because, you know, they might read their Bible more. They might love their wife more. They might respect their husband more. They might seek out to serve the poor more. And so just their simple existence in your life brings guilt and brings shame upon your own life because you're not living according to how they live their life. Some outside experience is drawing you away from Jesus this morning that is creating guilt and shame in your life that doesn't need to be there. Moreover, it's, it's creating confusion and darkness. And John seeks in this passage, again, to reassure these believers, to reassure them that God loves them and that God has their best interest in them. Now, this morning, this passage has a formula. 
and it's a very simple formula. It's got three points to help you know the assurance of God. There's three things that this passage is going to tell us this morning. If you're struggling with the assurance of God this morning, there's just three things you need to do. And the first we see in verse 1, stop sinning. My little children, I'm writing these things that to you, these things to you, so that you may not sin. Uh, John is concerned that these young believers are continually engaging in sin, continually indulging themselves with any number of sins. And John knows that sin brings darkness. Throughout this whole book, he's using these images of light and darkness to express the Christian life and the Gnostic life. And so he's afraid that these young believers are indulging in sin. They're continue, continually um, bringing darkness into their lives by neglecting the goodness of God and running towards sin. Now, what is this darkness? John uses this imagery throughout the book to communicate honest, it's spiritual darkness. John's not concerned necessarily about, uh, I guess, darkness in the world as the sun goes down, but spiritual darkness. And when spiritual darkness comes, uh, we get lost. We get disoriented. We get frustrated at times. Look with me to chapter 2, verse 11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. Sin brings darkness into your life and blinds you from the goodness of God. And it's just that simple. For those of you in here that are struggling this morning of knowing that God loves you, knowing that there's a peace between you and God. Maybe you've got some sin in your life that you haven't dealt with, some unrepentant sin. And what it does is it causes us to stumble. It causes us to be disoriented in many ways. And so we, we say things like, how can I be a Christian and live my life like this? Does God really love me? I'm so ashamed of who I am. I call myself a Christian, and yet I continue to do these things. And we're confused, and we're disoriented, and sometimes we're depressed about our own faith. Sin is like entering a room that is dark, and the next room, or the adjacent room, is light. And there's a door between these two rooms. And say you're in the dark room and the, other do the door is open and the light from the other room is illuminating your room. Very much like this this morning. As I walked in, this room was dark. But when I opened this door, it became illuminated and I could see. What sin does and what sin is, is you slowly closing that door throughout your life and things get darker and darker and darker until you get disoriented, you get frustrated, you get depressed. That's what sin is doing. It's causing your life to get darker and darker and darker and causing you not to know the reality of Christ's love for you. My tendency in applying a point like this would be to create some kind of creative, nuanced application. Uh, lest I confuse you, I just want to say, stop sinning. Just stop doing it. Um, stop thinking that God loves you because of who you are. 
Stop thinking that God loves you because of what you've done. Stop, uh, stop ignoring those, or stop being indifferent to those in this world that are less fortunate than you are. Stop pitying yourself and where you are in life. Thinking as if you are the center of, the real, of, of this world's reality. Stop your sexual immorality with what, if it's uh, images on a computer, a magazine. Just stop it. If you don't want darkness in your life, we need to stop sinning. Stop withholding care from your wife, guys. Stop acting or desiring her to be lovely before you love her. Ladies, stop, not, or stop disrespecting your husband. Stop thinking he needs to be respectable before you respect him. Just stop it. And when we stop sinning, the light will come in and the frustration and the disorientation will go away. But John doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, stop doing, just stop doing something. He says, start doing something. Look in verse 3. And by this we may know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So you see, the Gnostic philosophy that was invading this church is not concerned with doing anything. It's concerned with knowing something. It's concerned with having some secret knowledge about God. And John wants to refute this uh, fallacy. He wants to say, no. If you're a Christian, you need to keep God's commandments. You need to live out your faith. Um, I want to take a little rabbit trail here. I, I, I know that sometimes these can be bad, so I, I apologize if... If I upset some people. But this has been laid upon my heart this past year as I've thought about my own Christian life and my own history within the, our denomination. And that is, is, is obedience is kind of viewed as a bad word. A Reformed tradition um, can look at obedience in a negative light. And I want to encourage you this morning and let you know that obedience is not a bad thing. Being obedient to God is a good thing. It's how you were made. It's how you were supposed to live. We're so afraid of some works righteousness orthodoxy that we become, we, we become complete, well, our lives play out in some complacent orthopraxy. We're so conf- concerned about not being self-righteous and not being works righteous that we neglect what God has called us to do, is to be obedient to Him. We're apprehensive toward obedience because we see it as a bad thing or in a negative light. But it's not negative. And I say that with great confidence because Jesus tells us to be obedient to Him. Listen to what John fourteen fifteen says. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 15, 9 through 10. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Abiding, keeping, obeying, all these terms are pointing to us, are instructions to us to obey God and obey what He has revealed to for us to do in His Word and not to shy away from it. 
We're supposed to, our, our disciplined, obedient lives are supposed to move from a more heartless, heartless complacency to a more joyous and sweet desire to obey God. Listen to what Calvin says in his introductory to his Psalms commentary. Here is the true proof of obedience, where bidding farewell to our own affections, we subject ourselves to God and allow our lives to be more governed by His will. The things most bitter and harsh to us, because they, because they come from Him, become sweet to us. God's desire in your life is to see you love His law and to obey it and to be faithful in doing that. Just read Psalm 1. Being obedient to God is a good thing. And John is telling these people to keep God's commandments and to do it and to do it well. Now, what does he mean by keep these commandments? Well, if you turn with me to chapter 3, verse 21 to 23, it says this. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. So to believe or to keep His commandments means to believe upon Jesus and to love one another. So first, to believe upon Jesus. I've always been perplexed by this question when somebody says, just believe, or somebody asks you, just believe. Sometimes I think, what does that even mean? What does it mean to believe? Uh, well, there's three things that it's important for us to know, to understand what it means to believe. First, we must acknowledge that Jesus existed at all, that he actually was a person, that he actually lived according to what he said he did, or uh, living according to what he proclaimed. He was a real person at a real time. And those believers that John is addressing in this passage probably wouldn't have had a hard time believing that because they lived so close to the time of Jesus. But for us to have lived 2,000 or lived 2,000 years from the existence of Christ or His earthly existence, that's a struggle sometimes to believe that He actually existed, that He really was a person. And part of believing is acknowledging that fact that He was a person and He lived on this earth. Secondly, we must assent to the reality of his life, death, and resurrection. Our minds uh, must be validated according to that truth. Or this truth must be validated in our minds. That he actually did live, die, and resurrect from the dead. The reality that he did what he said he would do. And he did it for an unworthy people. We must assent to the fact that He came to save sinners. He came to seek the lost. And He actually did it through His life, death, and resurrection. But thirdly, kind of the linchpin to believing in God is trusting. It's really trusting Him with your life. Now what does that look like? I think Paul gives us a hint of that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he says, You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. What it means to trust means to give up your allegiances to yourself, to turn them over to somebody else, to know 
and to believe with all your heart that you don't belong to yourself anymore. That somebody else has rights over your life. And that somebody else is God. That He has redeemed you. He's bought you with a price. You are not your own. Trusting is simply turning over your allegiances from yourself to God. That's what it means to believe, is to acknowledge, to assent, and to trust. And John is asking these saints to believe, to believe, to acknowledge, to assent, and to trust in the person of Jesus Christ. That's how you keep His commandments. You believe. Some of us this morning know that. Some of us have some time in our life resting, rested in Christ alone. That we've known the Lord's justification from some point in our lives, whether it was when we were young or you know, adolescent or young adult or even later in life. We, we have rested in Christ alone. And yet we sit in these chairs this morning and we're struggling. We're struggling to believe, did that really take? Am I really justified before God? How could God still love me? Look at my life. It's a mess. It's a wreck. I continue to sin. I continue to neglect His goodness. Does God really love me? And you want to be assured of that this morning. Part of that assurance is keeping His commandments and believing in what He says. That if you call upon His name and you put your faith in Him, His love is placed upon you. And you can never, ever, ever cause that to be taken away from you. No matter what you do. You are His. And He is ours. And He calls us to believe that. Some of us in here this morning don't believe. You've been coming to church your whole life. Or maybe you just started to come back to church. There's some kind of struggles in your life that you don't know where to go and so you've come to church. Maybe you're struggling with the economic crisis and you need help. And you haven't put your faith in Jesus. You haven't believed upon Him. Well, this is the day of your salvation. I would encourage you as God's man to stop running from Him. His goodness is enough for you. He has given His life for you. And He promises never to leave you nor forsake you. This is the day of your salvation. This is the day. Would you rest in Him? Would you see His goodness offered to you in His Son? That your sins have been dealt with. And that you stand right before Him. So keeping His commandment means to believe. Secondly, it means loving one another. John spells this out a little bit more in chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it for us. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Sounds like James chapter 1, doesn't it? John is calling these young saints to love one another. 
And how does he describe this love? By laying down your life for others. This is what it means to abide in Christ, is to give up the rights of your life and to follow Jesus by dying on a regular basis to those that you love. By dying to yourself um, and giving up your rights for those that you don't love, those that are your enemies, that have maybe slandered you, maybe that have withheld something from you. John is encouraging these young believers to love one another, to give of their life, to be more concerned about their brothers' and sisters' happiness rather than their own, to be focused on seeing others be joyful and happy and have their needs met more than you're concerned about having your own needs met. Not fighting in life to get what you want, but fighting in life to get what others want. To fight for the injustice that happens all over our city. To love one another. Uh, to serve one another with time and resources. I'll never forget when I first came into RUF and we were going through training, one of the teachers of our training looked at us and said, since when did your time become your own? When did it become your time? It's just not. It's God's time. And he wants you to use it to love one another, to love these students. Part of being a Christian means to be inconvenienced. And we don't like to be inconvenienced, do we? But that's part of loving one another is being inconvenienced by them and extending the right hand of fellowship. Maybe extending something out of your, your back pocket that has some kind of president on it. Out of love and out of care. John is encouraging these saints, these young saints, to keep the commandments by believing in Jesus, and by loving one another. If you want to know assurance this morning, if you're struggling with God's love for you or knowing his presence in your life, just two things. Stop sinning and keep his commandments. It's just that simple. In fact, isn't that what... Your reflection and preparation says, this quote from Tim Keller, Thus we see Paul saying, The ministry of deed and mercy must be directed first to our own community, but must be shared also with all people. In other words, the ministry of mercy is not only an expression of the fellowship of the church, but also an expression of the mission of the church. That's what you're all about, is believing in God and loving one another. But oh, would we be remiss if we didn't have a third point. Oh, how we would struggle, right? If it weren't for this last point. You see, some of us in here struggle to do that perfectly. We struggle to believe in Jesus. We struggle to love our neighbor. And we're frustrated with ourselves. And we wish that 
We weren't sinful. We wish that we did everything perfectly. And we battle the flesh day in and day out. And our lives are full of death. Our lives are full of victory and failure on a daily basis. And we're on that treadmill of trying to do the best that we can and be the best that we can. And we're frustrated. In John's passage this morning, I think in a real way says, it's okay. It's okay that you sin. Now before you throw me out the door, listen to what I'm going to say. It's okay. Jesus has paid for your sins. This is not a license. John is not promoting a license for us to continue to sin. Doesn't he say, stop sinning? And look what he says in chapter 3, verse 4 and four through 6. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. To continue to sin is not okay. To be unrepentant of your sins is not the life that God has called you to. But you're going to sin. You're going to struggle. The flesh is strong. And you're called to enter into the battle with Jesus. And He will, on your behalf, encourage you and give you victory over your sins. But the reality is, is you're going to struggle. You're going to fail. And the passage this morning is encouraging us not to lose hope when you fail, when you falter. You know why? Because you have an advocate in Jesus. Amen. You have an advocate in the person of Jesus. Look in verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And then back in verse 1. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Now, what is an advocate? I asked my students not too long ago what an advocate was. And they struggled to tell me. Uh, And quite frankly, if I was where you were and somebody asked me what an advocate was, if it wasn't for Wikipedia, I don't know if I would have known either. Uh, But an advocate is someone that, that takes up your cause. Someone that stands along your side uh, and aligns himself with you or herself with you. One of my favorite movies is Hoosiers. Sorry, I'd be good if I say it right. Hoosiers. And there's this great scene where Norman Dale, he's a basketball coach that has taken over this struggling basketball program. And he has tried to change up, I guess, the principles of how to play basketball in this high school. And those that have kids that are invested in this program have been frustrated because they continue to lose. And it seems like his philosophy of of how to teach basketball is not working. And so they have this town meeting where they're going to fire Coach Dale. Uh, But there's one issue here, and that's Jimmy Chipwood. Jimmy Chipwood was the best basketball player in the county. And he is not playing for Hickory High School right now because he's struggling with some issues. And yet he enters into the meeting and he walks to the very front after they voted to dismiss Coach Dale. And he says, I think it's about time that I start to play basketball. And this whole sanctuary erupts 
that they're so excited that this player is coming back to their team. But he says something, uh, and he becomes an advocate for the coach, and he says this, I play, coach stays. He goes, I go. And you can just see the crowd just go silent because they know what he has just done. He's become an advocate for Coach Dale. He's aligned himself with that coach. So much so that he says, I'm going to play only if the coach stays. That's what Jesus has done for you. He's become your advocate. He stands before the Father and he pleads your case. And he says, Father, I have loved this one. This is my son. This is my daughter. I have placed my love upon him or her. He or she is my friend. Jesus becomes our advocate. Now the question is, how does he become our advocate? Well, it's just in this passage. Quickly, he says, he's our propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is a big word. It's a big theological word, but it's an even bigger biblical word. Uh, and the way I want to explain it is just simply through an illustration. When I was in high school, uh, my freshman year, I just went to a new high school, and I was in Mrs. Hughes's class. Mrs. Hughes taught English, and I was new to this class. But everybody else in the class knew each other because they came from the elementary school that kind of fed the high school. Well, I was an outcast. I was an outsider. So I was in class one day. I think it's like the first week, and I thought, well, I need to step out. I need to start meeting some of these people that are in my class and, and be friendly to them. So I walked up to this guy and this, this gal, and they were talking, and I said, hey, hey, what's up? What you doing? Or how are you all today? I don't know what I said, but this was like introducing myself. And this guy in front of this cute and attractive girl said, did you brush your teeth this morning? <laughs> and I didn't say a single word. And I just walked back to my chair and I sat down, and I sat through Mrs. Hughes' class. And I was so ashamed. I was so embarrassed that my bad breath had, had turned off this guy and this girl. And this embarrassment throughout the day became more and more, uh, turned more and more into anger and rage. And I never forget, going home, never forget going home that afternoon and going up to my room and beating the stew out of my pillow on my bed, just unleashing my rage with my fist on my pillow, so hard that I was so afraid that the pillow wouldn't get back in bed with me that night. <laughs> but I was so angry. I was so upset that this guy had embarrassed me or had wronged me in front of this cute girl. And all I wanted to do is release this inner rage that was inside of me for being wronged. And I released it on that hard target pillow that was up in my room. That's what a propitiation is. It's an object that takes the wrath that somebody else deserves. Jesus is a propitiation for your sins. He absorbs the wrath. God the Father bludgeons him to death on the cross because of your sins. He stands there broken and beaten on the cross because of your sins, because you deserve the wrath that God is pouring out His Son on His Son. That's what a propitiation is. That is how God becomes our advocate, because His wrath has been quenched in His Son, the Lord Jesus.
Now, he's not only our propitiation, but he's our righteousness. Look at how John addresses Jesus in verse 1. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Marty this morning talked about how Jesus is the righteous one in his prayer. That we stand before God righteous because of Jesus' life. You've all heard it. You all know it. That Jesus lived a perfect life for you. It's as if some of us have these people in life and, and I have these people in my life that you wish that you were. That they do everything right. Their marriage seems to be perfect. Uh, they are engaged in the community in a way that you're not engaged in the community. And you wish you were these people. And it's sometimes you disdain them because they make you feel guilty. Because what they do in life is, is everything that you want to do in life. And yet you can't do it. And yet you struggle to do it perfectly. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the person that you want to be and you can't. Jesus was the person that did everything perfect. He never neglected his father. He never neglected the poor. He loved each and every person equally and perfectly. He was perfect. He's the person that you want to be and you can't be him. And yet... His righteousness, the person of Jesus Christ, is actually given to you by faith. You become the person you want to be in Jesus. You are that person by faith. As you unite yourself to the Lord Jesus, you become the person that you want to be. The perfect, untainted, unsinning person in Jesus. You are clothed with His righteousness. And that's the only way you can stand before God the Father. It's the only way that you can be at peace with God because of Christ's righteousness. I have a soapbox, and that is that Jesus just did, the gospel is not that Jesus just died for your sins. It's so much more than that. That he lived a perfect life for you. That he was the person that you wanted to be and you can't. But you get that person by faith in Jesus. Amen. If you're struggling this morning and you're wondering, does Jesus love me? Can I really call myself a Christian and believe it? The passage this morning says three things to you stop sinning. Start keeping the commandments and know that you have an advocate in Jesus. That He is yours and you are His. And nothing will change that. Amen.